open up your Bible to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, if this is your first time with us, my name is Kyle Worley. I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and we're in Romans. And we're going to be in Romans 6, verses 5 through 11 this morning, uh, talking about one of my favorite topics. But before we get into it, let me just have you imagine something real quick. Imagine that I invite you over to my house for dinner, uh, and let's pretend that the weather is like it was last weekend. It's very, very cold. You show up to my house and you realize I'm already outside. I'm in the backyard. I've got food set up on the patio table. There's a tent outside in my backyard. I've built an outhouse out there. And you're confused. One, because you're like, Kyle, I know you. You did not build an outhouse. Because that's true. Not a handy guy. But you're confused because you're wondering, hey, is there something wrong with the house? Right? You ask me, like, what's, what's going on? Why aren't we inside? I said, well, what, what do you mean? There's Nothing wrong at all. You say, well, why are we outside when it's so cold? Shouldn't we go inside the house to have dinner? Well, and I start saying to you, well, why do we need to go inside? If we get too cold, we can just get real close to the doors and feel some of the heat inside. And if we get real close to the walls, we can block ourselves from some of the wind and the sleet. My guess is that you would not stay too long at that dinner party. It's true. I can be around the house and I can get some of the benefits of the structure, stability, cover, provision, and protection of the house, but I have to be inside the house to really receive all of its benefits. And today I get a chance to talk to you about one of my favorite topics, not one of my favorite topics, my favorite topics, which is the doctrine of union with Christ. That's what we're going to spend our time on this morning, and we're going to look at Romans 6, 5 through 11, because I believe this doctrine is absolutely crucial to understanding the story of Scripture, to understanding the Christian life, and I don't think there is a secret to a vibrant Christian experience, but if there was, it would be meditating on the reality of our union with Christ Jesus, learning how to practice it, I believe, is at the heart of a vibrant Christian experience. And so I want us to look at Romans 6, 5 through 11, and I want us to explore this doctrine. It's all over the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's all over Romans, but in Romans 6, 5 through 11, we get a very condensed commentary on this doctrine. So I want us to look at it together. So I'm gonna read Romans 6, 5 through 11, and afterwards I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is that we wanna give thanks, because God hasn't left his people in silence, he's spoken. So let me read Romans 6, beginning in verse 5. It'll also be on the screen as well. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to explore three questions today. What does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be united to Christ? More specifically, what does it mean to die 
and rise or be raised again with Christ? And then third, how does this really shape our ordinary lives? Let's start with that first one. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Because Paul, right out of the gate in verse 5, says, We have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This word, united. What does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean for us to no longer just be outside of Christ, but to now be in Christ? Now, the presupposition that Paul has here, what he is assuming that you understand, is that we are born into this world outside of Christ. We are born into this world not united to Christ. Because this is an event that must take place in the Christian's life. For us, who were not united to Christ, to now be united to Christ. So Paul is presupposing that you understand that we, when we're born into this world, we are born into a very different identity. We are born into a different home. And that home is falling apart. The foundation has been broken. The roof has been removed. And that home is in Adam. Now, Paul really introduced this in Romans 5, to be in Adam. That is our fundamental by birth nature. We are born into Adam's household. And Adam's household is not the kind of home you want to be in. It's broken, it's shattered, it's decrepit, it's decaying. Adam's home is one of corruption and corruptibility. It is the dominion of death. We are born by nature into this world in Adam, in Adam's household. You see, Adam was our representative in the garden all the way back at the beginning of the beginning. And when he sinned, it was as if we all sinned. He was our representative, our ambassador before God. And when he sinned, his sin and the inclination to sin was given to everyone who would come after him. And so we are born into this world not united to Christ, but united to Adam. By nature, he is our representative. He is the head of our household. So to be united to Christ means that we have a change of representatives. We have a change of ambassadors. We have a new head of household. We have a new federal head. We are moved. We are shifted. We are displaced from the house of Adam and put into the household of God of whom Christ is the head. We are born in Adam. He's the fundamental shaper of our identity. You and I experience brokenness in our life and in the life of the world because of the sin of Adam. That's where our brokenness comes from. When Adam sinned, it was as if we all sinned, and we weren't just heirs of his guilt. We were heirs of the capacity to sin. This is a problem. It's a problem because it deems us unrighteous from the start. We explored this in Romans 4 and 5, starting in Romans 3. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. From the very beginning, we are unrighteous in our standing before God. We need a change of status. And what we desperately need, God graciously provides in Christ Jesus. And he invites us to receive the provision of Christ's righteousness by grace, through faith, it's placed in only one person, the person and work of Jesus. That's where we receive a new foundation, a righteous standing before God. And this righteous standing before God, it gives us a, a new identity. See, we're born into this world strangers from God, alienated. We are enemies of God. Uh, Ephesians 2 is going to say we were by nature children of wrath from the very beginning. 
And yet when God graciously intervenes on our behalf, we are moved from enemy opposition to God to family and fellowship with God. God's grace doesn't just forgive, God's grace fellowships with us, inviting us in to the household of God that is in Christ. You see, we're born into the world separated from God, but we were created to live in fellowship with God. You and I have been created to live in the very presence of God. That's what your life was intended for. As an image bearer of God, you were created to exist in fellowship with God. The deepest desires of your heart will only find their true satisfaction in the presence of God. Ecclesiastes says eternity has been set in the heart of men. You know what that means? It means a lot of us spend a large portion of our life taking tweezers with grains of sand, trying to fill up the whole of eternity in our heart, and nothing will satisfy that but the presence of God. That is where the joy is. That is where God is inviting us into, and yet there is something that from our very first breath into this world blockades us from that. There is a hurdle that we cannot jump no matter how hard we strive, and it is the hurdle of sin and unrighteousness. And so when God invites us to make our home in Jesus, he says, you could never do what is required of you, and yet someone has. Someone has done exactly what's required of you. Something that you could never do, someone has done. And that someone is Jesus. And when you make your home with God in Jesus, his victory is given over to you. That's grace. You could never accomplish it on your own. And yet because you are now in Jesus, Christ's accomplishment is given to you. Christ's victory over sin, death, darkness, and shame is credited to your account. This is the doctrine of the union with Christ. And I wish somebody would have grabbed me by the shoulders whenever I was a young Christian and would not let me go until I began to believe that this was the fundamental way of understanding what it means to be saved. Because I think for me, the primary lens with which I understood salvation was merely forgiveness. And forgiveness is foundational to the accomplishment of salvation on our behalf. But it is a foundation that God builds something beautiful on. Forgiveness is not just the beginning. It's the beginning that leads to something more. It is the ground, the fertile soil for which our desired fellowship with God can grow. We cannot fellowship with God until we have received his forgiveness. But when we have received his forgiveness, there is an invitation to freedom and to fellowship with God that gives purpose and meaning to the ordinary rhythms of the Christian life. And this is the doctrine of union with Christ. This is the engine that it provides. This union, you might want to write this down. The theologians have called this union living Living, meaning it goes with us as we go all places in Christ. It's not static. Your union with Christ isn't somehow more pronounced right now on Sunday morning in worship. When you leave here today, when you're going about your business this week, if you are a Christian, you are going about the ordinary affairs of your life. You're brushing your teeth, you're working out, your email clearing of the inbox, you're scheduling those expense reports, changing diapers, making meals, going on dates, having parties, all of that happens in Christ Jesus. It's living. It's living. It's not static. It's not placid, it's not complacent, it goes with you. You go everywhere you go in Christ Jesus. It's living. Second, it's spiritual. 
It's spiritual. Sometimes the old theologians would call it a mystical union. You know what it means? It means it's not visible with the eyes that we have. It's visible with the eyes of faith. It's a spiritual, it's a mystical union. It shapes your identity more so than the clothes you wear, though the clothes you wear seem to be more visible. One of the reasons why it is so hard for us to really begin to live in our union with Christ, to perform it and to practice it and to believe it as the fundamental truth is that it is not immediately visible to our eyes, right? So we can find things that we feel like will be better signals to the world of who we want them to view us to be. I don't know if you've ever been caught in the endless loop of trying to live out the projection of yourself that you want others to believe. But I'll tell you, it it is an endless loop because their views are always changing. And if you're constantly looking to them in order to validate your worth or your belovedness or your identity, then you will be a chameleon forever, rootless wherever you live. The reason for it is we have been given a new identity, but it is an invisible one. It's mystical, Meaning it's not visible to the physical eyes, it's visible with the eyes of faith. Meaning that we have to practice meditating on it, or it will be easy for us to forget it. It's living, it's spiritual this union is, and then lastly, it's necessary. It's necessary. Union with Christ is not just a nice bonus. It's not just the gravy, it's not the icing on the cake. To be a Christian is to be someone who is in Christ Jesus. John Frame says... To be in Christ is the most general designation we could give to a Christian. It's the most general thing that I could say about a Christian is that you were not in Christ and now by grace through faith you are. And that changes everything. It's the broadest thing. You want to know the broadest generalization that you can make about a Christian. They are someone who is in Christ Jesus. Now I know because I've spent a lot of time teaching on this doctrine, I know this can be very hard to understand. And I have found this illustration from a pastor named Rory Shiner to be incredibly helpful. And so let me just maybe help you think through this. Let me give you a picture here. Imagine that you're at an airport. You're at an airport and you're about to board a plane. The plane is on its way from Dallas to Boston. Boston is where you want to be. You want to end up in Boston. What relationship do you need to have with that plane to get to Boston? Do you need to be under the plane to submit yourself to the plane's authority in flying to Boston? To merely say to yourself, plane, I know that you can make it, right? You're much greater than I am. You're built for flying. And to merely say, I look at the greatness of the plane and I acknowledge that that's a plane and I'm not a plane. No, you don't need to merely submit yourself under the plane. Do you need to be inspired by the plane to watch it fly off and whisper to yourself, maybe one day I too will be able to fly. What about following the plane? The plane takes off and you take off behind it running as fast as you can in the direction that the plane flies. None of those are going to work because you know the key relationship that you need to have with the plane is not to be under it. It's not to be behind it. It's not to be inspired by it. You need to be in the plane. If you want to get to Boston, you got to be in that plane. Why? Because by being in the plane, whatever happens to the plane will also happen to you. The question, did you get to Boston, will be a part of a larger question. Did the plane get to Boston? Because if you're in the plane and the plane gets to Boston, guess what? You made it. 
We've got to be in the plane to get where we'd like to go. And at the heart of the biblical idea of being in Christ is something like that. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with him, whatever is true of him is now true of me. I was born into this world alienated from God, and yet the Son of God, Jesus Christ, exists in unbroken fellowship with the Father. And if I am in Christ, even though I started at odds with God, I now have fellowship with God. Do you know why this is crucial? I mean, there there are hundreds of reasons why. Not only is it the foundation of how the Bible talks about salvation, it's crucial because so many of the lies that you and I are inclined to believe about who we are, that you're not worthy, that you're not beloved, that you can't experience forgiveness, that you can't experience freedom, that you're marked by your shame, that you're marked by your mistakes, that you're alone, that you're forgotten, that you're isolated, that no one cares. So many of those lies find their antidote in the reality that when we enter in by grace through faith in Christ, the Father knows us when we feel unknown, the Father sees us when we feel unseen, the Father loves us when we feel forsaken, the Father never abandons us, when we feel like everyone else has. The Father never asks us to measure up in order to be worthy. He never does any of those things. Those are all true. The the Father does not look at the Son of God and say, okay, listen, if you will only do X and Y and Z, I will love you. Before Jesus' ministry ever begins, before he does one thing, what does the Father say about the Son? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What freedom would come in your life if you began to believe that before you had an opportunity to do anything impressive, anything worthwhile, before you had an opportunity to life hack your week, to get things done, to get an accomplishment, to get a raise, to get a promotion, to finally have what you thought you always needed, before any of that happened, that the Father's pronouncement over your life was, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. What kind of freedom and boldness and courage and confidence would come if you really believed that that was an unbreakable, unshakable reality over your life? I'll tell you, it will be a world-changing kind of freedom. And this is what God is inviting us into. Being in Christ, living in Christ. And Paul explicitly ties this to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You saw it in verse 5, but look at it in verses 6 and 10. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What does it mean to die and rise with Christ? It means that when we trust in Jesus, when we give him the affections of our heart, the allegiance of our lives, the ascent of our mind, when we give him our head, our heart, and our hands, when we place our faith and our trust and our loyalty and allegiance to Christ Jesus, it means that all of the victory of his historical work is given to us. 
You and I deserve death. When we enter into Christ, someone has paid that debt. You and I are born into this world spiritually dead. When we enter into Christ, we are made new. We are born again. There is a resurrection that happens out of death and darkness. God makes us alive in Jesus Christ. It is through faith that we enter into the saving works of Jesus. It means that for Christ's people, his work is counted on their behalf. There is such an intimate union here that we can be said to die with Christ. No one in Paul's Roman audience would have been unfamiliar with the brutality and the violence of crucifixion. Nobody. And when we read this, it can feel like to us, yeah, the cross, merely this kind of sanitized symbol. But this language that Paul is using here, crucified with him, is visceral language. This wasn't conceptual. It wasn't abstract. These are people who had seen crucifixions undoubtedly. So to say to them, if you will but give your trust and faith to Jesus, the cross that you deserve will be taken from you because one will have already carried it and died upon it. That's an incredible invitation that Paul is giving to this church and to us to be crucified with him, to participate in his death and resurrection. It's not merely that we die with Christ, it's that we are raised with Christ and will rise again in Christ. Now the language of resurrection here, it's used in a fairly um, oh, technical way. When Paul talks about resurrection, sometimes he's talking about the fact that when Christ rose from the dead, we rose with him. But there are other times in which he's talking about a future resurrection to come. And in this passage, it kind of leaves us a little bit in the middle. But both are true. And one of them is one that we think of often, and one of them is the one that we never think of. You know, you and I, we're between two resurrections. The first resurrection of Christ and the coming resurrection of the dead. We're caught between those two realities. We're a resurrection uh, kind of theology between the already and the not yet, what Christ has already done and what he is coming again to do. And you and I are caught in the tension. And there's no better place to be in the tension than in the very one whom was the first fruits of the resurrection and will eventually lead the, pre the procession of the resurrection of the dead. That's where we are at. We are caught between these two things and it's in that participation in Christ's death and resurrection where we see that the bondage of slavery to sin is broken. Subjection to death is broken. The rule of Satan is broken. You see, all of the things that characterize our first life in Adam find their destruction in Christ and Christ alone. You and I are born into this world enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. Shackled to the very things that promise us destruction. And there is only one hope for freedom from that slavery. It's Christ. We are born subject to death. Meaning we are born into this world under the dominion and rule of death. 
It's our proper outcome. It is the proper place that we're headed. It is our just reward because of sin. And there is only one place where the dominion of death is destroyed, in Christ. And maybe most counterintuitively but, and counterculturally, but maybe crucially, what Paul gets at in Ephesians 2 with greater clarity even than here, we are released from the rule of Satan. Now, none of us like to think about Satan. Nobody does, which is probably one of his greatest deceptions. Nobody likes to think that we're born into this world under the subjection of Satan, under the rule and kingdom of darkness. And yet that's exactly what Scripture says. And when we enter in by grace through faith into Christ, we're not merely free from the consequences of sin. We are given a new king and a better kingdom. Not the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. And not Satan, but a savior. And we have to pause here. We have to pause here because it's crucial to understand, and what Paul wants us to just absolutely not miss here, is that the present benefits of salvation are ours because of the past and future work of Christ. The present benefits of salvation, sometimes we can kind of conceptualize salvation, where we can talk about being saved in a way that has no alignment to the actual historical and future works of the Savior. But in this passage, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. All of the benefits that you receive of salvation are locked into the past and future work of Jesus Christ. To say it another way is this. It's to say, we cannot divorce the present benefits of salvation from the actual historical person of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished. You lose the person, the real person, the Son of God incarnate into this world who lived a perfect life, died a sinless death, and conquered death and rose in ascension to the right hand of the Heavenly Father. You lose that, you lose any benefits of salvation. They are tied to the actual reality, the historical record of the work of Jesus. If we have died with him, presupposes that he died. If we will rise with him, presupposes that he has risen. And let me tell you something. If those two things are true, everything changes. Everything changes about your world and my world and the way that we live in it. See, Paul is at pains to tell us that when we say salvation is in Christ alone, we are saying that we can only experience the saving benefits of God if we are in Jesus. We can experience forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Christ has taken upon himself the judgment that we deserve. And when we place our faith in Christ, we enter into union with him, and the judgment is absolved. We can only experience freedom from the forever death that is hell because Christ has conquered the grave in the resurrection. And when we place our faith in Christ, we enter into union with him and we are given a righteous standing and an invitation into forever with God. So how does this shape our lives? How is this not just an abstract doctrine for Sunday? Well, look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to a church. He's addressing people, most of whom would identify as Christians. 
and he tells them, in light of this profound spiritual reality, you must consider yourselves. Why does Paul charge them with this? Consider yourselves. Why does he direct their attention to it explicitly? Why does he call them to consider, to practice, to meditate, to preach to oneself? to look for ourselves in the story of Christ because it is so easy to look anywhere else for who we are than to look to the Savior. And he tells us you must consider yourselves and we must consider it. So what does that mean? What does it mean to consider? Because it can be easy to rush right past that. It means to think on it. You got a lot of space for just thinking in your life? You make a lot of space for reflection. We don't live in a world that does. I know that it feels like our lives can be so crowded out of time to just consider. And yet if we do not, we will find ourselves living in the story that is subconsciously in the old self. That's baked into the core of our bones. You will find yourself playing out the role of a character in a story that you don't even believe is true about you any longer because it comes from the old man's muscle memory. The old self's muscle memory. This is an invitation to consider, to meditate upon a new identity, to reflect on it, to think about it. How would you do that? You'd pray. You'd pray. That's a way that we can meditate on this identity, to meditate on what God has done in Jesus, to pray it into our hearts, to come to God and say, God, today is a day where I can feel that I am being pulled in to a false identity. Today, Lord, there are going to be temptations for me to believe something that's no longer true about me. Would you guard my way from those temptations? Would you root me deeply into the story of your son? We pray it into our hearts, both proactively and responsibly. Probably the most common prayer I pray as a Christian is a breath prayer. It's, Lord Jesus, help me find myself in you. And I don't know how many times in the course of a day, whenever I'm driving somewhere, whenever I'm driving back from somewhere, whenever I feel overwhelmed, Whenever I feel scared, whenever I feel like there's a desire that's creeping up in my heart that I want to say no to, Lord Jesus, Son of God, help me find myself in you. Help me. Help me see myself in your story, we pray. We praise. We celebrate and we give thanks to God, not just on Sundays, but every day. Giving thanks to God is a way of reminding ourselves of the spiritual blessings that he has for us In Jesus Christ. So we give thanks. We give thanks. We tell the story. We preach it to ourselves and we proclaim it to others. Let me give you a practical way that I want to invite you to start doing this. Okay? I want to invite you, Christians, I want to invite you to stop trying to give good advice as your first word. I want to invite you to stop just trying to make someone else go, let me just give you some good advice. Let me give you what you need to hear so that you can get on and move on. I want to invite you to start giving gospel reminders. Hey, I don't really know. Let's pray about what God has for you. But what I can tell you is this, is that you are beloved in Christ Jesus for good forever. Let's start there. And let's move from there. Beyond just, yeah, listen, here's some moralism. Here's some moralism from me. Here's some moralism from you. Do we feel like we said something? Great, let's move on. 
find ourselves in the story. We preach it and we proclaim it to others. We look to root our stories, our trials, our sorrows, our joy into the story of Christ. We look to find ourselves in Jesus even when it feels like Jesus isn't anywhere around us. Are you suffering? Did Jesus suffer? Are you grieving? Did Jesus grieve? Are you feasting? Did Jesus feast? Are you saying no to that which is evil? Did Jesus say no to that which is evil? Are you saying yes to that which is good? Did Jesus say yes to that which is good? Connecting and tethering our story to the story of Christ over and over and over again. And we do all this. We meditate on it. We consider it. Why? So that we might see ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be dead to sin? Does it mean that we no longer sin? Does it mean that we can't sin any longer? Does it mean that God's love is conditional on our sinlessness? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. What it means to consider ourselves dead to sin, it means that you don't have to sin any longer. You don't have to sin. Here's what I mean. You don't have to sin in order to find joy, hope, meaning, identity. You have access to something better than what you had before. You have access to the fellowship of God in Christ where all pleasures are forevermore. You don't have to settle for sin. Some of you are settling for sin. We all do this, but some of you find yourself presently in a cycle of settling for sin. It's the next click, it's the next pour, it's the next lie, it's the next argument, it's the next pill, it's the next whispered gossip. That will be the one that will finally satisfy your craving to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be happy. And you know and I know that it never does. It never does. It is the law of diminishing returns. More is required of you and less is given to you every single time. To consider yourself dead to sin says, I do not have to choose this. God has given me a righteous standing. I can now walk in obedience. I can choose the better portion. I can choose the better way because I have been freed from the holy judgment against my sin. I've been invited to fellowship with God. I know where the joy is. Consider yourself dead to sin and consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. That you are invited into living in an abundant life. That's what the abundant life promise is. It's not, it's not just health, wealth, and all good things. The abundant life that Jesus promises is life in God, life with God, life as it was meant to be lived, life in God's presence forevermore. When we are invited into God's home in Christ, we are invited into true and abundant life. And this is where God has invited you. It's where God has invited me. It's where God has invited us. He's invited us into his home to share his table. But many hear this invitation and settle for trying to live around the house of God. Maybe you find yourself there, camped outside his doors. There is a temptation to spend our whole life around God's home, around Jesus-y kind of things. It's very tempting everywhere, particularly 
in the Bible Belt of the South, it is easy for us to feel like, well, we'll just kind of stay around the household of God. We'll just kind of get some of the benefits from being in the general perimeter of God's fellowship. And let me beg you, do not settle for merely being around the household of God, but accept the invitation of God to enter into life in Christ and learn how to live in his presence. I, I found that it's really easy to confuse living around Jesus with living in Jesus. And so I want to give you a way of thinking about this that I found really helpful. Maybe you'll find it helpful too. We'll close with this. The invitation to live our life with God in Christ is the doctrine of union with Christ. And what this means is that when we trust in Christ, we are granted something that is unbreakable, that it's unshakable. It can never be disrupted. It can never be deepened. Your union with Christ, when you gifted it, when you are receiving the benefit of union with Christ, guess what? That can never be taken away from you. It can never be removed. But God invites us to learn how to live in his presence. And this is called communion with God. Communion with God is the privilege of those who have been united with God in Christ Jesus. And communion with God, it can be disrupted. It can be deepened. And I meet a lot of Christians who believe that God has left them because their communion with God has been fractured. It's been disrupted. And they confuse their identity in Christ with the blessings of that identity. And so they, they possess low degrees of assurance. They're constantly doubting that they're actually welcomed into God's presence because they feel like they failed. And they're experiencing some of the disruption of sin, some of the disruption of absence from the presence of God. And they read that as, I am now outside of the favor and love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet, let me tell you, that is an impossibility. If you have made your home with God in Jesus, it can never be taken away. But your nearness to it, your enjoyment of living life in God's household, it can be disrupted. It can be deepened, which is good news on both counts. Because if you feel far from God and yet you believe that he's done a great work in your life, it is possible to draw near to him once again. And if you feel far from God, even if at one point you felt near to him, it's good news because your farness from God is not a result of his forsakenness of you. And he's inviting you and welcoming you and saying, you do not have to wait. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your affairs in order. You don't have to get your life in the right shape to come back into the home. Come back in and I will make you clean. I will wash you with the water of the word and I will cleanse your shame. God is inviting us to learn how to live with him. And I think the temptation for us is to believe that really we can begin to live our life with God when we're fit for God. But you can't. You can't learn to live with God. You can't, you can't say, you know what, God, I'm going to impress you, and then you'll love me. God loves us. He invites us into fellowship with him. I want you to consider what it might mean for you to begin to believe that God's pronouncement over your life in Jesus is the most fundamental thing about you, that it's the core thing, that it's the central thing. And what the fruit and the fruitfulness of that could look like, I'll tell you, in my own life, I have found it to be a place of incredible joy. And God is inviting you into that as well. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. By the power of the Spirit, asking you to bless your word. Asking you to shake the foundation of the false identities we so often settle for. 
I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ for whom there is ever-present temptation to surrender to the false stories and the false identities that the world so lavishly provides and that our inner broken nature continues to cling to. I pray that we would live truly as sons and daughters, for truly we are. I pray, God, that that would shape the life that we live together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that our unity in the church would be thoroughly rooted in our union with Christ Jesus. And I pray for those who believe that they will have to grasp for all that God has for them before he will graciously give it to them. I pray that that lie would be diminished in their hearts, that they would hear the effectual call of the Holy Spirit inviting them in through grace to live with God forever. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, amen.